Welcome back to British Food and History Lent. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, so we're about to start our very first full week of Lenten fasting. Your stomach might be rumbling, but worry not, we have some choice morsels to serve up to you today. Unfortunately, they're just metaphorical. First up, we'll be looking at the week in Lent. This week is Ember Week, so I'll be doing one of my favourite nerdy pastimes, and that's looking in old cookery books. In this case, the oldest cookery book that there is in the English language, The Form of Curry. Then, I'll be telling you all about the history of Lent, at least from the Christian church's perspective. When did they bring it in? Where did the idea come from? What are the rules? That sort of thing. With Lent also comes springtime, and to mark the passing from the misery of winter to the sunny potential of spring, we have Ember Week. There are four Ember Weeks a year, one to mark the beginning of each season. There's this one, which is always the week after Ash Wednesday. Then there's one after Whit Sunday for summer, another in September for autumn, and a winter Ember Week during Advent. And how do we celebrate it? With a fast, of course. Four fasts have been fixed, which are called the Four Ember Days, because they fall in the seasons, said Ralph of Lenham, the 13th century theologian. And no namby-pamby fast either. Bread and water, and that's your lot. Ember Week is a time to thank God and nature for all that it's provided. The spring Ember Week is really more a time to thank in advance for what he will provide in the coming months. Changes in the seasons cause great changes in people's behaviour and mood, as it does now. In medieval Britain, it was believed that it was the four humours of the body that influenced mood and health in general. Each of these were directly influenced by the four elements of the physical world. These humours, as it was believed at the time, were blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. And the elements were air, earth, fire and water. Now, of course, we know today that there are many elements, carbon, oxygen, sodium, etc. But for quite a few centuries, it was thought it was just those four. The four humours of the body were associated with specific behaviours or temperaments as the seasons changed. The elements changed and tugged on our humours, putting them out of balance. Any ailment we had was also assumed to be an imbalance in the humours. So medieval medicine was all about keeping them in balance. Air was linked to the blood, calling sanguine behaviours, being active, social and gregarious. Fire was linked to yellow bile and caused aggression. In fact, we talk about people having venomous bile when they're being aggressive and nasty. Earth was linked to black bile and caused melancholy and depression. And water was linked to phlegm and caused apathy. People are often called phlegmatic if they're a bit down and lacking energy. These beliefs are still represented in our language today. In Yorkshire, God's own country, when I was a kid, people would say blooming ummers when things were not going their way. Ummers was a dialect word for humours. I wonder if anybody says it now. I don't really hang around in Yorkshire too much these days. So uh, if you hear anybody say it, or you say it yourself, please let me know, because it'd be very nice to know that people still use that phrase. In the medieval Christian world, of course, the elements were controlled by God. So as God controlled the seasons, he influenced the elements, which tugged at our humours, pulling us away from or into temptation and sinful ways. Ralph of Lenham, the 13th century theologian again, he tells us, We must needs fast four times in order to temper these four humours, for they hold the greatest sway over the disposition of every individual. Whoever shall temper those humours shall be less inclined to sin. 
Because of the warm, moist nature of spring, we need to temper the blood. Thanking God for the seasons in Ember Weeks and what he has provided is nothing new, of course. In fact, this quarterly nod to God predates Christianity with the pagan ancient Romans, where they too prayed and offered gods to their deities in summer, autumn and winter. When Rome became Christianized, these celebrations carried and quickly became part of the Roman Christian calendar. The Christian religion knew what it was doing, slotting itself into existing pagan festivals, celebrations and events. It rarely forced completely new ones. You're much less likely to have people revolt if their daily routines and calendar don't change that much. By around the 3rd century BC, the early Roman popes ordered these ember days that everyone marked anyway. They realised they were missing a trick and added a fourth one at seed time, i.e. this coming ember week that lies within Lent. They needed every chance they could get. If it appeared to God they were taking nature for granted and exploiting it too much, he would be displeased, show his wrath, create plague, flood or famine. So it was serious stuff. Ember weeks were a very Roman thing for quite a while, but the idea eventually began to spread west, eventually being brought to England by St. Augustine somewhere around the beginning of the 5th century. He was a very influential and I think liberal man for his age. He wrote all about his own sins and infamously kept a mistress. He has quite the CV, but among many things on there, my favourite is that he's the patron saint of sore eyes. The fires have sadly gone out on Ember Week. They were less closely followed after the Reformation and the rise of Protestantism. They seem just a, a little bit too Catholic, thank you very much. Even the Catholic Church dropped them from their liturgical calendar in the 1960s. The origin of the word ember is a strange one here. I always assumed it was because of ember cakes being cooked. Ember cakes are kind of little humble balls of dough that were cooked directly on the embers of fires. King Alfred the Great infamously burnt some ember cakes and really got it in the neck when he nodded off, exhausted from battling the Danes when he should have been keeping an eye on them. It's thought to be a corruption of the Latin word tempura, meaning time. Now, here's a thing. Spanish priests in the 16th century travelled to Japan on missionary work. When these regular fasting days cropped up, the Japanese locals came up with a dish that they could eat. It was made up of fish and vegetables in a light vegan batter. And what was this dish called? Tempura, of course. Amazing, I love this sort of stuff. Back in England, the word morphed into yumbran, the Anglo-Saxon word for circuit, i.e. the circuit of the seasons, rotating and repeating. Imbratide was ember week, and imbradagas were the ember days. It's a reference to an ember tart to be eaten on ember days in England's oldest cookbook, The Form of Curry, written about 1390. And I went off to Manchester's beautiful John Ryland's library to take a look at this very old manuscript. Right, I'm on my way to the John Ryland's library to see The Form of Curry. It's very exciting. I feel like I know it like the back of my hand already, but it's always useful seeing an actual manuscript because you don't really know what it looks like, feels like, reads like, until you've got it right in front of you. Let me tell you a little bit about the form of curry. It was written around 1390, and it was written for Richard II's kitchen, really. Many copies were made, and there's lots of different versions of it, all handscribed, because it's pre-printing press, this. This is 14th century, so it was written on a vellum scroll. 
And what happened was the cook, or the head cook, who will have been illiterate, he probably dictated all these recipes to a scribe. Richard II was, a, was an early foodie. It's reckoned he invented the napkin, so there's a claim to fame. Uh, he loved the theatre of food, and he loved high living. And it was thought of, really, as a bit of a ponce. People didn't really like him that much. He was a child king. Child kings have a habit of being either saps or self-indulgent. Those of you who know your medieval kings will know that other child kings were kind of a bit rubbish too. Henry III, Henry VI, all good examples of that. Anyway, going off piste. Well, poor old Richard, so much as he loved his food, he was eventually deposed, stroke, usurped by Edward IV, and this actually kick-started the War of the Roses a few decades later. Sadly and rather ironically, he was uh, starved to death in a dungeon. So that's what you get for being a greedy thing. As I've been yakking to you, I've, uh, <laughs> I've arrived at the reading room. It's going to be uh, very whispered after now because uh, I can't take the manuscript out of the reading room. It's a communal reading room, so we'll see. I'm here bright and early. Hopefully nobody else will turn up for a good while and I can talk through some things. Looking forward to finding the end of data and see if there's anything else that might be of use in there. Okay, so I'm in a quiet corner of the reading room. Let me tell you all about the form of curry in a very hushed voice. So this version of the form of curry that I have is a handwritten, handscribed manuscript. It's a couple of hundred years newer than the original one. The original one was a, a vellum scroll, this is a, a vellum book. Um, it says on the inside here that the original was written in 1377. I don't know where they got that date from. 1390 is the reckoned date. Uh, but it's all within the reign of Richard II. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the book because I'm holding it. It's, it's very, very small and very raggedy. Um, it, let's do the five senses. It smells of an old book. Even though it's made out of vellum, which is calf skin, which means it feels kind of crinkly, but at the same time, slightly velvety like suede. I suppose like you might, might expect it is calf skin after all. Here we go. So, the funny thing about the form of curry is we don't know what it's actually called. The original manuscript doesn't have a name. The opening word is missing from the from the scroll. We assume it's the though. So it's the form of curry, which curry doesn't mean curries like Indian curries or Thai curries. It means cookery and form doesn't kind of mean shape, but it really means the, the, the sort of correct way of doing things. And here's what it says. The form of curry was compiled by the chief master cooks of King Richard II, King of England after the conquest, which was accounted the best and royalist voyander of all Christian kings. It was compiled by ascent and amusement of mastered, masters of physic and philosophy that dwelled in his court. <laughs>
that's a very short little introductory paragraph. There's a full paragraph. This seems to be a short version for some reason. Um, and it talks about the other things that are in there, really. Um, the meats, the, the soups, which are called pottages. Curious foods, subtleties. Subtleties were foods that were brought out in a course just to be looked at and not eaten. All part of the, the pomp and the theatre of grand feasting. So, the first thing in the book is a big old contents list, which is good. So I'm going to try and find that one that I'm interested in, first of all. And that is... The Tart. Ember Day Tart. Let's try and find it. The book is very delicate. I have to very gingerly turn the pages. I expected to have a pair of little white gloves, but I don't. But I do have these little uh, snake weights, so that I can hold the book open without using my fingers. I have to get my grease, greasy fingers on there, which might stain the, the book over time. So let's see if we can find it. All the recipes are numbered, but there are no page numbers. This might take me a little while to flick through. Found it, I found it. Tart i Imber Day. I'm going to attempt to read this in Middle English. It's quite difficult to read. So let's have a go at this. Okay. Tart e Embraday. Take and parboil onions and herbs and press onto water and hew it small. So onions, herbs, you don't know what herbs. Press out the water and we're chopping it up. Fine. Take braise, it looks like. B-R-E-S-E. -E. I think it's cheese. I've had a look at uh, another version of it, and it's some kind of green cheese or blue cheese. Okay, so good. Right, so we've got some cheese. Bray it in a mortar and temper it with a run, which are eggs. So cheese and eggs with some butter, some saffron and salt, raisins, covens, so covens, a little sugar with powdered douce. Douce means sweet, so it's the spices that you might associate with sweet things like, say, an apple pie. Uh, so, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, maybe mace, black pepper, that kind of thing. Bake it in a trap and serve it forth. A trap is the... It's the case, or the tin, should I say, that everything's served forth in. Everything's always served forth. Uh, we don't actually have any pastry in the recipe, even though it's a tart. So let's have a little look down at the next recipe, which is also a tart, and maybe that can give us a bit of information. The thing is with these, they don't tell you everything. They assume you know certain things. They assume you know how to cook. They assume you know how to basically make a tart. 
So let's see. Tap the bry. Take a crust inch deep in a trap. Okay, so that's a bit more helpful for us, isn't it? So there's a crust that goes an inch around the trap. So it's maybe like a bullet. Um, it's like a. It's a blind baked pastry case that goes an inch around up and goes up an inch around the sides. Right. Okay, that's good. Um, so we. That's how I'll make the ember tart. I think. What else does it say? Anything else that's useful? Take yolk of Aaron raw and cheese and roon, but we mix it with the yolks to guide together. Cast there to powder something and saffron and salt. Do it in a trap and serve it forth. Okay, so I think I've got some good information here to go off and make my tart. The thing that I don't know are herbs. What herbs are we talking about here? We need to have a look. I'm going to have a look through and see if we can get anything else to shine on what kind of herbs I should use for the Ember Day tart. Uh, I've got something here which is going to help. It's a salad recipe. Uh, or salad, it's called here. We have a big old list of herbs. It's a herb salad. There's no um, lettuce in this. It sounds delicious, I have to say. Um, I think it's just a big list of herbs that they used to use, or things that they counted as herbs anyway. So let's read out the list. It says to take purcell, that's parsley, sage, garlic, chibolus, which I think are spring onions. Some regular old onions, leek, borage, which I actually have growing on my allotment, coincidentally enough. Uh, mints, which is mint. Uh, fennel. Um, cress. Now, by cress, it's usually things that are um, cress-like. I've got a feeling that might be rocket. Wild rocket does grow in England. Um, rue, which is a herb that we don't really use anymore. Rosemary. Punsflery, which I think must be purslane. And it's just to wash them, clean, pick them, um, make them small, rip them, tear them up with the hands, mingle them, I think that says, with uh, rabe oil. I think that might be um, rapeseed oil. Uh, Lay on vinegar and salt and serve it forth, so I know it's make a nice salad dressing. So things that we think of as a French salad dressing people were eating in England in 1380. That's quite reassuring. Okay, great, so we've got a list of herbs now that we can put in there. Most of them are fairly easy to get. Um, excellent. We'll find out how it turned out later in the episode. A big thanks to all the helpful folks at John Ryland's Library, by the way. If you've never been, you should really go and visit. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in Britain. I took some photos of the manuscript, including the recipe that I used, so you could see exactly what I had to go from to recreate it. Lent is a 40-day period of fasting, a number that seems to crop up a lot. 40-day fasts were already a thing going on in Judaism, and had gone on in ancient Egypt... 
Lent occurs because it represents Jesus' own fasting trip to the wilderness. His motive for doing it kind of makes sense, if it was the sort of thing his Jewish kin did anyway. It took a good 300 years for Lent to become part of the official Christian calendar, where quite a lot of fasting was going on anyway. Back then, Christians fasted every Wednesday and Friday, the days Jesus was betrayed and crucified respectively. Saturday too was added later, the day he was entombed post-mortem. Add to this the fasting period of Advent, and you're fasting for almost half the days of the year. Some really fun people even dropped it on Mondays for good measure. Lent was first observed in England in the late 7th century. Lent was first observed in England in the late 7th century when Erkenbert, King of Kent, ordered it. He also ordered all idols to be destroyed, which is something one would associate with the Protestants. Erkenbert was obviously a few centuries ahead of the curve. But why did it catch on? What's so great about not eating? There are several religious come medicinal reasons for this. Religion and medicine were part of the same thing after all. Firstly, it was a great leveller. The poor and rich alike would be eating the same food and everyone could reconnect and feel as one. A nice communal affair. Second, fasting also keeps body and soul healthy. Corrupt elements are cleansed and the humours become more balanced. This was more true when the fasting regime was more strict all very character building. In the 9th century, early French Emperor Charlemagne really made sure folk followed it as well. Any newly converted baptised chieftain in his empire found not observing Lent was beheaded. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, this slowed down the rate Christianity spread throughout his empire substantially. It also made perfect sense to have a period of fasting when there wasn't much to eat anyway. Harvested and preserved foods are heavily depleted, there's no fresh meat or green vegetables to eat. Lent is rooted in starvation, but we'll talk about that another week. So what are the rules? Actually, the foods you are allowed to eat, and when you're allowed to eat them, have changed through time. Today, most people give up a single thing and maybe at a push have a fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Back in its early days, all animals and animal products were off-limits. So no meat, fish, eggs, dairy or animal fat. As I just said, there wouldn't have been much of these foods around anyway, though chickens may have started laying eggs after the harsh winter. Rules soon started to slacken. First of all, fish was allowed. Medical reasons, you see, it was hot times, so the cooling cold-blooded fish could be eaten to redress the imbalance in the humours. But give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Seal, Porpoise, beaver, frogs, all counted as fish. Hare and rabbit fetuses? Yep, fish, get them down you. There were lots of mock foods too, the main one being almond milk, which was used to enrich dishes and would even be made into mock cream or mock cheese. Edward I's household went through a staggering £48,000 of almonds in two years. Lobster was used instead of meat in rissoles, and quiches were made with rich fish roe, which was hardly slumming it. Spices were restricted, the poor things, as they were hot too. Cinnamon and sugar, however, were allowed, because they cleansed the loin and the bladder and soothed the entrails. By the way, it's worth mentioning at this point, if you were poor, none of this meant anything, because every day was a fast day. The idea that Lent was the great leveller was quickly tossed out of the window once loopholes were pounced upon. 
Whew, that was a lot of history there. So time for a bit of change of direction, I think, to the next part of the Embatar recreation. We're going back over to my friends Kate and Pete, who we met last week. And they're going to tell us exactly what they think of my medieval Embatart. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks hello. for having me back. You're welcome. I have a tart for Ember Day. Ooh. Is it a quiche? It looks like a quiche. Yeah. It is a quiche. You don't sound sure. Um, let's just say it's unusual. Oh. Unusual can be good. <laughs> so let's assume it's going to be good. I love unusual. It's one of my favourite flavours. Good. Um, I just need to pop it in the oven to warm up. I'm assuming, I don't know, I'm assuming it was eaten warm. Oh, so, seems feasible. Yeah. Yeah. And a quiche is nicer warm than cold, so yeah, I reckon so. Plus, we're not, we're not at the beach. We're not at the beach. We need to be civilised. <laughs> Indeed. And if it's warm, we'll be able to taste all of the delicious ingredients much better. Mm. Which will be a surprise, I'm assuming. They'll be surprising. <laughs> <laughs> We're assuming. Why am I getting more worried? Yeah, um, yeah, it's unorthodox by today's <laughs> standards, that's for sure. But yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking that green stuff isn't spinach. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you like, you can do some guessing. You thought it was a quiche, so yeah, there's eggs. You're not getting any prizes for that. Well, I'm definitely getting cheese. Definitely getting cheese. I'm seeing onion, I think. Okay. Well, it's quite dark in here. I reckon the green stuff's some kind of nettle or something, just because of the way you've been talking. Oh. Mm. It's a cunning one. It's not nettle. The, the, there's, there are herbs in it, but they're fairly familiar ones, actually. That's kind of, we're on good ground okay. with the herbs, actually. I'm not good at identifying herbs. Okay. But I might be able to get close. You can see another one there without trying to give it away. And some little, oh, hello. little bright shards. Paprika or something oh, like paprika. that. that kind of colour? Well, it wouldn't be chilli because too not chilly. thin for that. But it is a spice. Oh, saffron. Saffron. Oh, yes. Oh. Get it. <laughs> yeah, and there's some other ingredients in there. The reason that I'm... Oh, I don't want to give too much away. There's another ingredient there. So that all sounds great. But there's a Those couple things of things... A couple of things that are, I don't know, upsetting the apple cart in some way. I think we should just get it in the oven and I'll tell you a little bit about it, I suppose, whilst it's cooking. Right, that's in the oven. We've just got to wait for that to warm through to a delicious peak temperature. Just the way they did in medieval times. Yes. Most people actually ate their food cold in medieval times because it took so long to carry them from the kitchen to the to the place that we're eating and it had to be tested about five times for poison. So Not a problem in a two-bedroom terrace. Indeed. But yeah, kings never ever really ate hot food because by the time it got to them, it was quite cold. So we might be in keeping. Yeah. <laughs> this ember thingy-majig, what is it? So, it's not what I originally thought it was, like the embers of a fire. It's from an old word, an old Anglo-Saxon word, yumbra. And really it's just a way of recognising the different seasons. So at the moment, because it's Lent, it's the spring ember days or ember week 
And there's one for winter, there's one for summer, there's one for autumn. And it's just a chance really to recognise the seasons. It goes right back to Roman times, pagan Roman times, in fact. But it's not ember as in the end of the season. Oh, like November, October. No, as in like... November, December. <laughs> no, I mean like it's not the embers of spring. Oh, I see. Not at the end of hmm. No, but it is the embers of winter, and it is more thinking about you know things are starting to germinate. You know, it's still quite a depressing time of year. Nothing's growing, so you might be right there. There might be a common th- root to that. That hadn't occurred to me. Good thinking. Maybe that is why we have November, September. Well, they're all at the end of the year, aren't they? think there's no april ember kind of but do you know i think there were the old anglo-saxon words for the months especially april may i can't remember what it is off the top of my head because it's a great big long sort of 14 letter word but i'm sure it's got ember in it so where's this recipe from so this recipe is in a book of recipes a very very old book of recipes called A Form of Curry, and it's the first collection of recipes written in the English language. I've copied out my best handwriting, straight from the book. I was at the John Ryland's Library, finding out all about it. So um, it might give you some clues as to what's in there. My pronunciation might be off, but what I do know is you've got to put on a northern accent, and I'm quite good at that already. Because everyone spoke in northern accents, even if they're down south. There's another one. (laughs) You say put on. Yes, I usually speak in um, BBC English, as you know. <laughs> okay. Tart e imbrede. Take and boil onions and herbs and press onto the wat and hue then smell. Take breast and bray it in a mortar and temper it up with iron. Do thereto butter, saffron and salt. A raisins corons and a little sugar with powder douce. And bake hit in the trap and serve hit forth. Oh, I feel like my English degree is finally useful. <laughs> <laughs> All that middle English poetry. Yeah. So you had onions, mm-hmm. you had herbs. Yes. Worryingly, I think you might have had raisins. Or currants mm-hmm. and sugar, mm-hmm. and I definitely smelled the cheese. You smelt breasts. <laughs> <laughs> you mean not knowingly, but yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's and... it's basically blue cheese. Oh, okay. Some kind or of like, blue cheese. Like Even maybe. Well, who knows? I'm not really. Sh- I mean, these things and are very difficult to know. Less? But you've got. Uh, Saffron and salt. Aaron. Garlic. Aaron. Mmm. You could tell it was. You knew it was in there as soon as I walked in with it, because you asked me what it was. Eggs. 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 That's Middle English for eggs. Aaron. Interesting. Egg is a Viking word. Mm. Makes sense. Short to the point. Not messing about. Yeah. So hang on, they pillaged graves and then they stole our Aarons. Stole the Aarons, yeah. Good gosh. Yeah, no, you did, but you did pretty well. I mean, okay, so there's um, powder douce. That sounds like, mm. you know, a dance move or something. 
Douce, douce. As in like soft. As in soft, but um, I'm thinking of an Italian word that's very similar. Dolce, sweet. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Powder sweet. So it's sweet spices, things that you'd associate ah. with baking, like with apple pie. So basically, mixed spice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. See, if we, I'd have said mixed spice, I'd have come across as dead ignorant. But you're allowed to say it. Mm-hmm. Oh. I suppose you get, you, get, you get cheese with like apricot and stuff, don't you? So. Yeah. So this is. So I mean, is this like uh, which year are we in? We're in um, thirteen ninety. Is this like the Hawaiian pizza of that era? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're about to find out, aren't we? Do we need to name the tart? Because my mum used to make a thing called Lancashire tart, which my brother renamed Raquel. <laughs> so we might need a medieval tart. <laughs> Medi- medieval tart? Who would that I be? I can't think of one. Yeah. Eleanor of Aquitaine or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eleanor, she never buys her own. <laughs> sure Eleanor has the same ring. No. <laughs> However, we've just named our tart. <laughs> yeah, it's just got tart for Ember Day. That's, it hasn't got a name. Well, now it does. Doris, Doris Day. Doris Day. I think I prefer Eleanor. It's more classy. <laughs> You're right. This is a classy tart. tart. <laughs> da, da, da. Ring. I'm pretty excited. No, it's kind of got that thing going on, hasn't it? Where it smells quite sweet, but it looks quite savoury. I'm not really sure what to do with that. No, but it does look good. Oh. Yeah, it looks like a map of the moon or something. Shall I just um? Shall I just yeah dig in? Shall I? We'll decide whether it goes with salad or not in a bit. I think we should taste it first. Yeah, I think you're right. So we may have had this of like a cake dish or as like a. A stuffed dish. So back in the day, there were no well, there were courses, but every course had about twenty-five different dishes, and they'd all be brought on, taken out. So there was no kind of starter, main, dessert. So to have a sweet thing, yes, they might have had sweet things, but they're all mingled in. So there's a the grey area is much greyer than because. I suppose what we might have some red currant jelly with lamb or something like that, or some chutney with some cheese. We kind of do sweet and savoury a bit, but not very much. It's a bit like the thing with uh, Cornish pasties, where you have your like your meat side and your fruit side. The bed few courses in one. The Bedfordshire clanger, I believe that's called. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It really sounds like a mass murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your stomach's rumbling or turning? This <laughs> <laughs> is a bit of a sniffer. That's got a nice bit of saffron in it, that one. It's wonderfully confusing. Yeah. It's, it's not the, sna- the saffron I can smell. But it's the A-runs. I assume there's not that much saffron in it, because isn't it really expensive? Fancy. Yeah, so I did a big pinch and I steeped it in some hot milk. There's no milk in the recipe. But um, I kind of thought we well, want a taste of saffron because it's expensive. It's still expensive today. This is definitely a posh person's this. Oh yeah, yeah. This is all for Richard II. So who no one's presumably posh. Who is pretty posh? He had um, a staff of ten thousand people. Whoa. 
So that's pretty posh. Um, and he and no one was starving at this point. So what are we thinking? There's a very strange flavour there. Sorry, I'm just about to crank. Which I think. Cutlery or not, is this a hands meal? <laughs> okay, if you want to be properly medieval, okay. Have we, have we assumed he's invented the napkin at this point? <laughs> are, we pre, are we pre or post napkin? I think. Are we in a post napkin society? Maybe we're at the meal that creates the napkin. Okay. Maybe the napkin is a solution to a problem. So I'm just going to eat it as if it's like in a dog bowl. Ooh. Because it would all have been on a big trestle table with a white cloth. And you'd use the tablecloth to wipe your nose and mouth on and what have you. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> And there was no forks, because they were work of the devil. Only Italians use forks. So you'd have a knife, and you'd have a spoon. And that, that's it. So you'd be oh, we've got it all wrong. And fingers. So yeah, so certainly not a fork. Right. On point again, Peter. Knife, spoon and fingers, got it. There's a very strange thing going on, which I can't work out, is... Are parboiled onions a strange flavour? Sure. Do raisins do weird things with cheese? Or is it that I don't really eat blue cheese and I don't understand what to expect? See, it's like a weird triangle. There's onion, there's blue cheese, there's raisins. If you take one of those away, there might be... Na- oh, no, actually, no, onions and raisins are never good, are they? This is the issue, it's onions and raisins. But there's a strange sort of chemical reaction going on. I went for a big mouthful. There's kind of... Yeah, what them chewing gums called where like they clear your passages? Mental. <laughs> There's a kind of mental feeling going on here. You've gone completely mental. Mm. I don't know how I feel about this. Is it the mint? It's like I have a tongue tingly sensation. Mm. Something going round mm. and round. Mm. You see, <clears throat> no one was starving. This is what I started saying before we got put off. No one was starving. So everyone liked this. This is what you got to kind of get your head around when you're tucking into these meals. People ate this because it was nice. Because if they didn't want I it, they'd have something else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is kind of banquet food. Did all 10,000 people get it? Uh, well, don't know when it comes to this one. But yeah, there was certainly a big hierarchy as to what food you kind of get. got. Sorry. Uh, whereabouts in, it, in the hierarchy of them, is, I don't know. Bearing in mind it's got saffron and stuff in it. I'm assuming it was probably just for the king's table. I assume. Yeah. So basically, all I've got to do is forget about quite a lot of hundred years. Mm-hmm. And we're royalty right now. Yeah, basically. Come into it. You've eaten loads. I quite I'm like it. With my mouth I, I quite like it. I'm not sure if it's good enough to like be elevated to that status, but I do quite like it. Yeah. I think I'm having a different experience right. than you're having. It's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? The quiche. It's in the nose <laughs> of this beholder. <laughs> <laughs> It's, just, it's, just, it's like a menthol quiche. That's how I describe it. So is it nice? I love it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still don't know. It's either a one or a ten out of ten. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm all over it. I mean, I, I am hungry. Well, it's making me feel inadequate, really. It's made you feel inadequate? <laughs> That's not an answer I was expecting. Okay. Is that because the meal is posh? <laughs> <laughs> it depends if you classify blue cheese as posh, which I would. I'm not sure this is all about the blue cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
bigger in my head, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do you want seconds? I'm not sure. Yes. You're welcome yeah. to my bit. So if I went to a banquet of royalty, mm. I'd like expect a really, really good meal. And that was like, that was a solid 8 out of 10. No, no offence, Neil. That was a solid 8 out of 10. Not, not taken. But would it taste better because I knew that people had died before I ate it? Yeah, because all the all, all the spices in it, you know, because there was death on those spice roads, wasn't there? Blood money. Yeah, but that's not how it was sold. Of course, it was very much sold as these ingredients. So, for example, um, a cinnamon bark, which is a very very common spice. They called they called it cannelle in the old recipes. Uh, the people selling it said kind of. Basically, as a sleight of hand and to distract people from what was really going on, they said, oh, it's uh, from the nest of like a magical bird. We had to steal it from this giant. So they made up these big fantastical stories. Basically, yeah, just to distract people from the fact that what was really going on was all pretty cutthroat and nasty. So, so they told people it was basically fancy twigs. Fancy twigs? Is that. <laughs> Maybe that would make you feel better. Are you common enough for fancy twigs? <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere far flung, so from in that time, it was Asia and Africa. There were men whose heads were on their torsos. They believed that. There were men with just one giant foot jumping about. And of course, things like mermaids all came in then, unicorns. There's, an, there's a unicorn cookbook. It shows you all so, different so, ways to cook a unicorn. Because so, 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 so <laughs> we're all kind of here going like, oh, and that tastes a bit like that. You know, Not just blue cheese, but other stuff too. But the, the, there's... There's a thing of an entirely novel flavour. Yeah, you can't really compare it to anything else. Imagine how boring food was until spice. So there was mustard and there was caraway. That's because you could grow those in Europe. There were no other spices until the spice roots opened after the first caraway, crusade. Caraway, like the golf clubs. What? Isn't that friend of golf club? What are you on about? That sounds a bit like eating at my grandma's. Caraway? No spices. No spices, yeah, yeah. yeah. Salt, gravy. Yeah. There would have been no meat though back in those days oh, if you were. Yeah, that'd be a problem. If you were commoner. Because <laughs> that would be a really exciting dish. Well, it was quite an exciting dish because I liked it. Um, but it was a it would have to be a really exciting dish. Like if, if like you're getting those flavors going through the nose for the first time ever in your life, as opposed to you know growing up with menthol and those chewing gums that make the thing you go. Yeah, and of course it was really out there to impress people as well, of course. I mean, the amount of money spent on those spices, you know, talking about black gold for black pepper, it was so unbelievably expensive. And at this time, I used about half a teaspoon of sugar in there. Around the time of Richard II, in the whole of England, there's an equivalent of maybe a bag of sugar in the whole country. So that shows you how rare it was. It's such a commodity now. So, yeah, I mean, it was crazy expensive. And I think we did come to the conclusion that the the strange taste we're mm. getting is probably down to the saffron. Yeah, it's pretty pungent. I think it's a bit soapy. Yeah, when it's quite, too much it's quite it. chemical. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. chemically. Yeah, it's weird. Horrifying. Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. It can be a bit too much. So, this is whether or not one is used to blue cheese. This yeah. is quite a posh dinner. Yeah. So my understanding of Lent is that you're not allowed to eat nice, posh things mm-hmm. during Lent. How mm-hmm. are we allowed to have? How come we're allowed to have this? So spices were mostly out 
but certain spices were allowed in. Sugar was allowed in. So lots of things that people thought cooled the body because it's just about to come to spring, it's about to get warmer. And they all believed at that time there was the four humours, you know, the balance of, of the four humours, like heat, cool. It's a highly optimistic approach in February. Yeah. So all these things associated with cool food. Fish was associated with coolness. That's why you could eat fish yeah, during Lent. Yeah. But for some reason, things like cinnamon, sugar, herbs. Herbs were fine. People didn't really think herbs did anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, things got away with it. And I mean, there's no cream in this. There's no milk in this, if people aren't supposed to be eating. But yeah, you're right. I mean, but they were judging it completely differently. And really, any chance to get anything in that was nice in some kind of crowbar way people would try to get it in Henry VIII decided he really liked chickens so he wasn't going to give up chickens for Lent he thought what I'll do is I'll say eggs are like fish and then by proxy since chickens lay the eggs they're a fish too (laughs) (laughs) the Normans were terrible really because they really didn't want to give up meat or anything nice so they just found any way possible to get out of it and then the Pope would find out and he'd kind of get a bit angry and then they would have tighten the belt then he'd loosen out again and the Pope would wave his finger again and a lot of that went on but it's weird because <laughs> I, I reckon sugar is probably the most common thing that people would probably give up for Lent I mean apart from maybe drinking and stuff I reckon sugar is like one of the most common things now but that's because it's common and we have too much of it or is it, I suppose if it's really rare it's not something you need to give up because you'd never get to eat it well exactly back then eating big was the thing that you did when you were rich because you needed a lot of money now everyone eats big so what you have to do is show that you don't do that now. That's how you should. It's so bizarre. I'm isn't so it? rich, I can eat avocado for every meal. That's <laughs> yeah. what I should make sugar a genius thing to give up for Lent. I'm going to give up gold bullion next Lent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that wraps it up for another week. Thanks so much for listening again. If you've got any comments, questions, or queries, please find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com. I will do my best to reply to all the queries all the questions and all the comments. My blog, BritishFoodHistory.com, has loads of posts with recipes from Britain's past. Click on the Lent tab for more information on the things covered in this series, including my recipe for the ember tart. Have a great ember week, and I'll see you next Sunday, where we look at pagan Lent and Easter. I visit Manchester's only bean-to-bar chocolatier, and I cook up some hot cross buns. The producer for this series is Bina Katani, and it's a Sonder Radio production.